you have within your heart a craving to do the work of ministry, then you have one aspect. You've passed one part of the test for a call to serve as an elder or to serve as a pastor. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part five of his eight-part series titled Church Government, Monarchy, Anarchy, or Democracy. When you look in the New Testament, it's full of illustrations as to apostles, heralds, ambassadors, stewards, messengers, and more. Each of those roles describes someone who has not decided to send himself, but rather has been chosen, appointed, and sent on official business by a superior. Well, the same is true with becoming a leader in the church. You must be called by God to that specific ministry. But how do you know if you are called to be a leader in the church? What are the necessary elements of a call? Let's join our teacher for answers on The Word Unleashed. John 12, 28, Jesus is praying and He says, Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came out of heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. Everybody around heard it and they were some were saying it thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for My sake, but for Your sakes. So you know that I'm not commissioning Myself. I have been commissioned by My Father for ministry. Even the language of the New Testament referring to various forms of ministry. Take the word called. No one takes the honor to himself, speaking of the priesthood, but receives it when he is called by God as Aaron was. Separated or set apart. Speaking of Barnabas and Saul, they were to be set apart for the missionary labor that was before them. Romans 1, Paul called as an apostle and set apart. Others were described as sent. Jesus told His disciples, I send you. Romans 10 speaks of how beautiful are the feet of those who are sent. Other passages speak of being appointed. Titus 1.5, I want you to appoint elders in every city. When you look at the New Testament illustrations of ministry, they all describe somebody who has been sent officially on business. Heralds ambassadors, stewards, messengers, all of those words describe someone who has not decided to send himself, but has been chosen, appointed, and sent on official business by a superior. The same is true with becoming a leader in the church. They have to be called by God to that ministry. But that raises a question that has often been asked, and that is, so what constitutes a call to be an elder in a church or to be a pastor? Some of you young men may be thinking about the ministry. How do you know if you're called to ministry? Some of you who are a part of our church but aren't looking at being a senior pastor and being a teaching pastor as I am, but look to serve as other men in our congregation do, As an elder in the church, how do you know if you should pursue that office? 
What are the necessary elements of a call? How do you know if you've been called by God? There was a time in my life when I was confused about all of this. Shortly after I became a Christian, I came to Christ as a senior in high school, and I went off to a Christian college. It was the only one I, my family knew anything about, and I went there as just a, a babe in Christ, although I'd been raised in the church. And I began to wonder whether God wanted me to pursue ministry. There began a struggle over time that was eventually made clear to me by God putting me in the hospital for a couple of weeks and giving me a little time in isolation to think about it. And so there's the struggle. There's a struggle in many people. How do you know if you've been called? Well, Spurgeon mentions in his lectures to my students that John Newton distinguished three marks of a call. John Newton, of course, who wrote Amazing Grace. He said there has to be desire, there has to be competence, and there has to be the providence of God. The Reformers and the Puritans used to refer to the internal call and the external call. That is, the internal call was subjective, primarily within the person and coming directly from the Spirit. And then there was an external call, which was objective. It was obvious outside of the man and to work of the Spirit confirmed by the church. As you will see tonight from the Scripture, the Scripture teaches this view of both an internal call and an external call, and either without the other is not a legitimate call of God to ministry. Calvin wrote of these two elements of a call to ministry, if one is to be considered a true minister of the church, it is necessary that he consider the objective or external of the church and the secret inner call conscious only to the minister himself. So how do we know exactly what these internal and external parts are? Well, in 1 Timothy 3, where I want us to turn tonight, there are four tests of a man's call to ministry, to the ministry to serve as an elder. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. By the time we're done tonight, you will know if you should pursue being an elder, and you will also know how to evaluate those who claim to be called. The first test, I'm going to give you these four tests as we go through this text. The first test is the inward or inner internal call, and the final three constitute the external call. Okay, so keep that in mind. The first is the internal call, and the final three are the external call. I'm going to do it just for memory's sake with a series of C's. The first thing that constitutes, the first test that constitutes a call to ministry, let's call craving. Craving. Notice verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Now, it begins with this issue of desire. This is not mere excitement or enthusiasm. There are two words in this verse for desire. The first is the word aspires. 
Thayer in his Greek lexicon defines it meaning to stretch oneself out in order to touch something or grasp something, to reach after or desire something. The second word is translated in the English as desires. This is, tra- this is defined rather as setting one's heart upon, desiring, lusting after, craving. Those are all definitions of the second word. In other words, the first and internal part of the call to be an elder in a church or to be a pastor is a strong desire. But it's not a desire, notice, for the position. It's not a desire for the acclaim or the perks. It's a desire, notice, it is a fine work he desires to do. It is a strong desire, a craving, if you will, to do the work of ministry. To handle the Word of God. To teach the Word of God. To counsel and shepherd people with the Scriptures. To care for them when they're going through difficulty and trouble. To protect them from error. To love them. To be concerned about them through all the aspects of life. This is the work of ministry. Just to put it in perspective for you, I spend 30 hours of my week sitting chained to my desk and chair studying for these two messages that I preach each week. In addition to that, it's my joy to be able, and by the way, those are joyful hours. I don't at all, uh, I'm not at all disappointed about that. I love the fact that the elders of this church give me the freedom to do that. In addition to that, I have wonderful times of meeting with the staff that are here and being encouraged by them and hopefully encouraging them. I have opportunity to meet in counseling appointments. All of those, go on hospital visits. All of those things are part of the work of ministry. And if you have in your heart a craving, a strong desire to do those things, then you have the internal part of the call to ministry. Bridges, Charles Bridges writes in his book, The Christian Ministry, much more important that our choice should be influenced not by the love of literature or the opportunities of indulgent recreation. We should guard against the desires of professional elevation, that we should be divested of the selfish motives of esteem, respectability, or worldly comfort, that we should not seek great things for ourselves, that we should aim at nothing but souls, rather willing to win one to Christ than a world to ourselves, and that we should exhibit a devoted consecration of our talents to the service of God and to the people of God. That's what this craving represents. And if you have within your heart a craving to do the work of ministry, then you have one aspect. One, you've passed one part of the test for a call to serve as an elder or to serve as a pastor. Now, one warning I want to give here. It's easy to mistake a genuine desire to serve Christ, which every Christian ought to have, for a call to ministry or this craving to get into the work of an elder or a pastor. Be careful to sort that out. Give it time to see. I would guess that up to 50% of the men that went through seminary with me probably mistook a call to ministry for that longing they had to serve Jesus Christ. Every Christian ought to have that desire. 
And it's very easy to confuse the two. How do you know? Well, when we come to the other test, it becomes a lot clearer. All right, so let's move on to test number two. And that's character. The first test is craving. Do you want the work of ministry? The second test is, are you qualified based on your character? Now, we move from the internal and the subjective, the feeling that you have, to the objective. You see, I used to think that a call to ministry was some sort of a feeling that just overwhelmed you and you just knew. God sort of spoke to you or something. God never spoke to me. And He's not going to speak to you either. This is how, according to the Apostle Paul, we know we've been called or not. It begins with a craving, a desire. Secondly, is character. Now, an introductory qualification that really doesn't have to do with character, but with gender. The elder must be male. There are a number of passages that teach this, but just look at the end of chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, he says, here's how I want the women to handle themselves. And verse 11, he says, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And then he gives, as his argument, two reasons. One, because the order of creation... Adam was created first, then Eve, and the other because Eve is the one who was deceived and fell into sin before Adam. Both of those are timeless truths. Some people would have us believe that this principle is, is something that was stuck in the first century culture and that, that Paul would not at all admonish us to keep it this way today. But notice that Paul roots his argument in the created order and in the fall. And he, in the church, remember 1 Timothy is written to tell us how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church of God, 1 Timothy 3.15. Now, he says in the church, I don't allow women to teach men or to exercise authority, to be in a position of authority over men. That doesn't denigrate women at all, and at some point we'll deal with the exalted role God has given women. It's simply the divine order in the church. And so that's clear. The elder must be male. But let's move on to the character qualifications that are outlined here. And I'm not going to spend a long time on any one of them because we have a lot to cover this evening. So let me just give you some sort of summary overviews of the character qualifications. And if you're considering whether or not you're called to ministry, you need to measure yourself against these qualifications. Because if you don't meet them, not in perfection, but if these don't characterize you, and the people around you wouldn't think of you in these terms, then you're not called to be an elder or a pastor. Because this is the second objective test. And God doesn't call men to be elders or pastors who don't meet these character standards and qualifications. So give yourself a little test as we go along here. First of all, he must be above reproach. This is in both verse 2 of 1 Timothy 3 as well as in Titus chapter 1. And I'm going to give you as we flow along here, if it occurs in both Timothy 3 and Titus 1, I'll give you both references. If it occurs in one or the other, I'll only give you the one reference. So you can note that as you go along. Above reproach. This is simply a summary of all the qualifications. Literally it means not to be taken hold of. 
it was used originally even in a criminal setting. There was no charge that would stick. A good way to think of it is this. Here is a man whose life is without handles. There's nothing you can grab onto and bring reproach to his character. There's no obvious glitch in his character that disqualifies him from serving in the church. He must be above reproach. That is the umbrella qualification. And all the others fall beneath it. Let's look at the others together. Secondly, in terms of character, he must be the husband of one wife. That occurs in both 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. This is a moral qualification. Literally, it says, he must be a one-woman kind of man. He must be a one-woman kind of man. Now, this is a very complex issue. There are actually six different views of what this means. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it, but let me just briefly give them to you. Some say this excludes all marriage except to the church. In other words, that one woman he's married to must be the church. That's not the normal Roman Catholic view, but some Roman Catholics do use it to defend the celibacy of priests. The second view is that this really is intended to exclude polygamy. Now, certainly, the Scripture does forbid polygamy. This is, by the way, the more typical Roman Catholic view. But this cannot be all that Paul means, because Scripture already forbids polygamy. 1 Corinthians 7.2, for example. And Jesus, you remember in Matthew 19, said that it was intended from the beginning for there to be one man and one woman. That was the divine intention. Roman law prohibited polygamy. So it would have been unnecessary for Paul to have stressed this point. By the way, the same wording is used of widows in 1 Timothy 5.9. The widows had to be one man kind of women. It's very unlikely that that's a reference to, husband, to widows having multiple husbands. History doesn't record that was very common in Greek or Roman society. So it's very unlikely that this is the point Paul is making. Number three, some would say a one-woman man excludes remarried widowers. In other words, a man's wife dies, and he then may not remarry and continue to be an elder. Ken Hughes, in his commentary, makes a good point that if this verse excludes remarried widowers from being elders then 1 Timothy 5.9 excludes widows from remarrying if they want to be on the roll, you remember? And yet, chapter 5, verse 14, that's exactly what Paul tells the younger widows to do, is to remarry. So this can't be it either. Number four, some would say this excludes the unmarried. You have to be married to be an elder. In the Greek text, the emphasis in the Greek sentence is on the Greek word translated one. He must be a one-woman kind of man. If Paul had wanted to say that all elders have to be married, all he had to do is omit that little word one, and then it would have said, he must be a married man. He must be a married man. But that isn't what he said. Instead, he emphasizes this word one. But I think even a bigger problem to this view is that Paul himself was unmarried. And yet he was not only an apostle... He was also an elder. In 1 Timothy 4.14, he told Timothy that 
he was given a spiritual gift through the laying on of hands by the elders. And in 2 Timothy 1.6, he says, it was the laying on of my hands. So therefore, he proclaims himself to be one of those elders who was a part of laying on of hands of Timothy. A fifth view says that a one-woman man excludes the divorced. And this gets really complicated because there are several sub-views. One says a man who's divorced ever for any reason, a man who was divorced after conversion for any reason, a man who was divorced after conversion without biblical grounds, and a man who was divorced ever for unbiblical grounds. So you can see it gets really complicated. And then view six is that it excludes post-conversion sexual impurity. Once the man comes to Christ, he has to be a one-woman kind of man in terms of his purity. Now, the elders here at Countryside have come to a consensus with a slight variation of two of those views. Let me just share this with you just in case you've never seen this. This is the elders' perspective on this issue. God holds the leadership of His church to the highest standard, a standard unequivocally recorded in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. One specific, often debated requirement is that every elder or deacon be the husband of one wife, or literally a one-woman man. This means a married man should be known for a long-standing pattern of fidelity to one spouse. We believe, therefore, that divorce often disqualifies a man from holding either of the leadership offices of the church, but, of course, not from serving in the church. However, we will consider a divorced man for leadership as an elder or deacon if the divorce occurred prior to conversion, if a lengthy period of time has passed since the divorce, if the man has demonstrated fidelity to his present wife, and, and that's the key word, all of these conditions have to be met, and if we conclude, therefore, that there is no lingering reproach associated with the divorce. So that's where we as the elders of this church have landed. That it, any divorce after conversion and any sexual impurity. Now that takes us then to the word temperate. The next qualification is temperate, or as it's put in Titus, self-controlled. The Greek word for temperate is like our English word sober. It can refer to temperance in the use of alcohol, or it can refer to not being in excess, being under control. Since there's about to be another qualification about wine, this one is undoubtedly used metaphorically to describe a man who is self-controlled as opposed to being controlled by something else. This is a man who is not under the control of anything but the Spirit of God and his own mind. He is stable, self-controlled, and clear-headed. The next qualification is prudent. You see there in verse 2, in Titus chapter 1, verse 8, it's sensible, which is parallel to this. It means serious, not somber. You don't have to be long-faced, but it means here's a man who's serious about life. He understands what are the right spiritual priorities in life, and he takes those steps. Homer Kent, in his excellent commentary on the pastoral epistle, says he should have the balanced judgment to regulate fun to its proper place. The overseer, especially if he is young, must avoid the reputation of a clown. Young people may think he's funny, but they won't come to him for spiritual help. End quote. So prudent, sensible, 
having the right seriousness about serious things, knowing when to be fun and enjoyable, when to have a good time, and when to be prudent. The next word is respectable, again in verse 2. This is an interesting word. It comes from the Greek word cosmos, which means world. Spoke of a well-ordered arrangement of things. It literally means to have your life arranged in such an orderly fashion that others respect you. As one of my seminary professors used to say, if you want to know if you have this quality, go look in your closet. It'll be clear. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his series, Church Government, Monarchy, Anarchy, or Democracy. Tom will have part six for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. And friend, join Tom Pennington in Southlake, Texas, February 18th through the 20th for the 2022 Countryside Bible Church Conference, Our Glorious Hope. Tom welcomes Steve Lawson, H.B. Charles, Philip DeCourcy, and more to remind you of the eternal hope of heaven that is ours in Christ and to spur you on to live in light of that reality today. Visit thewordunleashed.org for more information and registration links to the conference. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.